Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the seventh episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'm going to share the audio portion of my webinar interview with General Lori Robinson. General Robinson recently retired from the U.S. military as a four-star Air Force general and also as commander of U.S. Northern Command, making her the first female combatant commander in U.S. military history, as well as commander of NORAD. Before we turn to the interview, let me remind everyone that my website has recently been updated to include links to all prior webinars, so you can catch replays of them via www.manshramani.com. You can also sign up for my mailing list there, and that'll keep you informed as to developments relating to both the webinar and podcast series, as well as information about the book as it's soon released. So without uh, any further commentary, here's the webinar replay. Thank you all for joining uh, this second episode of the Think for Yourself webinar series. Uh, my name is Vikram Mansharamani, and I'm thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, today, I am absolutely honored and humbled to have General Lori Robinson as my guest. Uh, I've gotten to know General Robinson over the last few years and have found every conversation with her insightful and educational. And so it's a real gift to be able to spend any time with her. And I'm thrilled to be able to have all of you join us virtually uh, for this conversation. So the plan today is I'll have a conversation with General Robinson for roughly half an hour. I have a bunch of questions. And then we want to turn it open to all of you uh, that are here uh, virtually to ask your questions. You can submit the questions through the Q&A feature on Zoom. It should be on uh, your control panel bar. It says Q&A. Uh, that will be easier for me to monitor and manage than going through the chat feature. However, I will look at the chat feature as well. So uh, insofar as you're able to channel it through the Q&A, that would be helpful. Um, also, before we uh, begin with our conversation, I thought it would be uh, helpful to just quickly review uh, and tell you about my next uh, series, uh, the next webinar in the series. So next Friday at 2 p.m., same exact time, same channel, so to say, uh, I'll be interviewing Tom Petrie and spending some time uh, talking to him about the oil industry. Tom is one of the most successful uh, oil executives, more than 40 years of experience thinking about cycles in the oil patch. And uh, I couldn't think of a more interesting person to have a uh, conversation with at this time, oil prices went negative during the course of this week. Tom wrote the book, Following Oil. Uh, so I think that'll be a fabulous webinar conversation as well. I'm gonna have that conversation again next week at 2 p.m. A link will go out via the mailing list uh, probably this weekend, uh, but please plan on attending if you are able. And then of course there was last week we had Dr. Khan uh, and there is a recording of that conversation available. So again, feel free to reach out to me if you haven't uh, received the link to the replay uh, and we will also be recording the conversation today. So with that said, I think it's time to get started. Uh, first of all, General Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I am absolutely honored that you're, you've chosen to spend at least an hour with us and just thrilled that, with our conversation and, and sort of friendship that we built. 
Well, Vikram, I can't tell you um, how much I'm excited about to do this. And, you know, having had the privilege to learn about you and work with you over the last couple of years to spend some time with you is amazing. So thank you for thinking of me oh. in your series. Well, that's very kind of you. So General Robinson, I think I want to start with how we met. I think it's just, it's a telling story. And actually, a uh, little plug, apologies, I've got my, uh, the, uh, the advanced reader copy just came into my hands. I was flipping through it because I did mention General Robinson in the course of my book. And I talk about how I met her. And it started with a tour. Uh, there was a bunch of senior professionals that were coming through Colorado Springs on a uh, tour led by General uh, Barbara Falkenberry, another dear friend. And uh, the bus pulled up to the headquarters of Northern Command. It was an August afternoon. It was swelteringly hot. It was very uncomfortable. And as I got off the bus, there was this person who was greeting us. And I didn't know who she was. She was very kind, polite, a little bit formal, but I was like, wow, this is fabulous. That was General Robinson. So right there in the parking lot in the middle of a hot August afternoon, a four-star Air Force General, commander of NORAD, uh, commander of Northern Command, greeted us as we got off a bus. Um, and I thought that was a telling statement. So first of all, thank you for doing that. That was such an impression. Um, and I think it says a lot about you, your leadership style. And, and, and as I've gotten to know you, it sort of confirms that. So, um, but anyway, that's how I met uh, General Robinson. Well, thank so, you for that. I, I'm, I'm just going to put a little plug in for what you guys did. You know, the opportunity for me and my staff, more importantly, my staff, to talk about what we did there and to give all of you uh, the inspiration and the comfort of how we defended the United States and Canada was important. So thank you for that. Great. Thanks. Uh, the other thing that's important to know is General Robinson comes from a family of service, uh, is part of a family of service, is the truest in terms of patriotic Americans uh, and American families that I've ever interacted with. She and her husband, David, have, what's the number? Uh, 73. 73 years of combined service. Uh, you know, David does a two-star uh, general uh, and uh, just amazing, really an amazing story. So let's begin. General Robinson, you started as an English major, is that right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, actually I started as a French and German major and I failed miserably. And then I thought I might teach and so I went to be an English major, how's that? There you go. And you entered the military mm -hmm. through ROTC, mm -hmm. expecting to stay for roughly? Four years. And I only went into ROTC because I knew I could find a job when I graduated from college. It wasn't that I went for a higher calling, um, you know, and I've said this to you, but I'll say it to the audience, you know, I'm the oldest of five, you know, and my dad from the oldest to the youngest is six years, um, you know, and my dad is looking at, um, you know, and God love my mom and dad, but is looking at, you know, college for five of us in, within six years. And he says to me, Laura, you should go to the Air Force Academy. And I said, dad, I've been in the Air Force for 18 years. <laughs> I'm not doing it. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just do this, as you mentioned, for four years. And so 37 years later, here I am. Great. How, I mean, sort of, how did you think about career progression? I mean, did you think about it or did you just go with what was presented? Right. Uh, obviously along the way, challenges, twists, turns. Right. 
Right. Oh, that's, you know, so I'll do, Vikram, if you don't mind, I'll do two stories. Um, One is when I um, got what I was supposed to do in the Air Force, uh, the person that was in charge of the ROTC detachment, he and my father knew each other. And um, he was like, Lori, you need to call your dad um, to get out of this career field. And I was like, well, that's not happening. Um, And so I went in just thinking I was going to stay for four years. Um, But after that, I learned to love what I did. But the twists and turns wasn't about, I wanted to think about being a one-star, two-star, even a colonel for crying out loud. I just loved what I did. And then I met my husband and we loved what we did. And um, then we both had amazing mentors uh, that taught us about, and I'll say this again, but taught us about being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, and, um, And so, uh, having the opportunity to continue and people putting me in places that was independent of my gender, my background, my badge, my wings. Um, and um, I just felt blessed and, you know, I just kept doing what, what the um, military asked of me. And my husband hung in there with me. Great. So actually one tidbit that is interesting uh, that I think says a lot about uh, both your experience and, and commitment, but also uh, David's experience and commitment to the to the greater good or the larger uh, enterprise, if you will. But maybe share with everyone the story about Japan versus Korea and sort of <laughs> the dynamics that took place sort of at the household. You know too much. Um, so that's a great story. So we're, we're living in Hawaii. It was the first time we lived there. Um, David was a major. He'd gotten promoted early to Lieutenant Colonel. I was a captain and they were going to send David to Korea to fly F-16s and for me to go to Japan to fly on the E-3s. And, um, you know, that just wasn't going to happen for the family reasons. And, um, and so I looked at David and I said, you know, I'll, I'll get out. You know, you're a fighter pilot, you got promoted early, you're going to be a general officer, you know, I'm not going to be anybody, you know, if I get promoted to lieutenant colonel, it'll be amazing. And, you know, my husband, who's the most amazing person in the world, looked at me and said, and what would you do? And I said, well, 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 I don't, I don't know what I would do. And he's like, well, we need you to stay in, I can go to the airlines, I'll go to the reserves. And, you know, so, so I tell that story all the time for two reasons. One, you know, it's amazing what can happen when you can have those conversations. But more importantly, I try and tell people to have those conversations before you get put in that, you know, predicament for the best, better of a word, you know, before, before somebody, whether it's the military, whether it's your, your, um, you know, personal work, whatever it is, have those conversations between two people that are dual income. Um, so you can know whose career comes first, you know, where, what are you willing to have to separate how long distance and time. Um, and um, so for David and I, obviously it worked out well, um, but, um, but it was one of those tenuous things. And um, I'm grateful that my husband, um, I, I'm grateful that my husband uh, took care of us during all of this time. Yeah, well, that's great. David's fabulous. Um, at least my interactions with them, brief as they've been, have been fabulous. Uh, so, well, talk a little bit about your most challenging assignment, I think, uh, uh, or most uh, memorable assignment. I know you've often talked about your time as a uh, instructor there at the Air Force version of Top Gun. Um, the better version. 
the be- excuse me, the better version. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so maybe talk about one of those experiences. That'd be great, I think. So I'll just tell you probably most, my most challenging assignment was my last one. Um, you know, from the perspective of, you know, you work directly for the Secretary of Defense all by it, then the President of the United States. And in my NORAD hat, you know, I work for the Chief of Canadian Defense Staff um, and um, uh, then the Prime Minister of Canada. Um, so that was challenging um, be just because of the level of responsibility. Um, but it was, it taught me a lot, um, you know, about the bigger scheme of things, not just the military part, but while I understood the interagency, while I understood, um, you know, uh, all the um, stuff with the, with the Hill, dear God, you know, um, I, I think that um, that taught me that bigger, larger. I would tell you my most favorite assignment was the commander of Pacific Air Forces. David and I loved going around there, talking to airmen and their families, being a part of that whole theater, um, and being able to make a difference, um, you know, throughout there, uh, and and seeing what they're doing and being proud of them. I was proud of what we did in Colorado Springs, um, but but the difference between those two was just incredible. And I I really uh, David and I really loved being in the Pacific, and we worked hard in Colorado Springs. Sure, good. Well, no, I, I understand that. So you've also played often uh, an interesting role of crossing silos. So, and you've been at the sort of forefront of, and I think in one of your um, testimonies to Congress, uh, they describe it as seams, as sort of the, the mm-hmm. seams where one area of jurisdiction is sort of overlapping, but not quite with another jurisdiction, et cetera. So, you know, one of the things that I've talked about in my book is sort of how to navigate uncertainty, how to cross silos, how to think about making tough decisions. What lessons have you picked up from those positions you've been in making tough decisions? So um, if you recall in my testimony, I, um, you know, uh, Senator Sullivan and his staff sat down between General Scaparotti and I uh, on our table, you know, what it looked like with the different combatant commands. And, um, and, and so um, uh, I sat there and um, looked at that and, and Senator Sullivan said, how are you gonna, you know, make sure that those black lines on this map don't, you know, um, uh, make sure that you talk to each other. And it comes to relationships at the end of the day, it, it comes to relationships. My ability to call General Scaparotti or my ability to, you know, talk to whether, you know, I was at Northern Command or talk to PACOM or talk to UCOM, which was General Scaparotti, it, it comes down to building relationships over time. And, and so, because what, at the end of the day, between us, what we wanted to have was a good dialogue and then what we wanted to be able to present to the Secretary of Defense was how we were going to, you know, you know, push this stuff forward, you know, to provide him information for guidance. Um, that's that's where we were at. And, and, and so to me, what I learned early on, and I wasn't the best person, but I learned it eventually, was don't burn any bridges. 
you know, when I went back to the Pentagon the second and third time, you know, and I knew those people there and they knew me, you know, it wasn't like one, I had to build a new relationship Two, I didn't make any of them so mad that they didn't want to cooperate, right? And be a part of a solution. Um, and then three, that's the part where, you know, General Scaparotti, myself, you know, uh, Harry Harris, we could all talk together about the things because we were all intertwined and, you know, same with Central Command. I mean, we, I mean, we were all intertwined and that privilege to chat with each other in Transcom and Stratcom. I mean, you just really had to build those relationships and you had to build it so that you could have honest conversations. That's what you really needed to provide honest feedback to the secretary. Yep. So one of the questions I received uh, in advance here, General uh -huh. Robinson, was, you know, you obviously also worked with teams that were dispersed and you learned how to communicate and it may seem unrelated, but I think it's probably related is someone said, all right, look, my team is now dispersed because of the the current pandemic. Uh, we're all working remote. How about any sort of management sort of guidelines or or any advice or tidbits of uh, advice you have for sort of how to manage and lead remotely? Right. So, I mean, first of all, you just have to acknowledge it, right? It is what it is. So now how do I, so I'll give you a great example. Um, when we were going through the hurricane uh, in uh, Puerto Rico, so I had the Navy commander in Norfolk, you know, I had the Air Force commander at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, and I had a uh, Coast Guard there, and I had the Marine guy, uh, Marine commander down in um, Louisiana, and I had taken the three-star from Army Command and sent him forward to Puerto Rico. Every day at 10 o'clock or 10.30, I don't remember the exact time, but it was about that, all of us got on the phone together. And all of us sat there and said, okay, and I would get situation updates and I would say, what guidance do you need? What is it you wanna do? But it was this notion that there was a set time and place every day that all of us, and, and quite frankly, um, you know, one of the things I told to my team uh, there in Colorado Springs is that you have to, once a week, take a day off. Now, if you wanna be on the 10 o'clock or 10.30 phone call, it didn't matter which time it was, but do it from your house and do it in your pajamas, you know? And, and so, so, and I did that once a week, I was at home, you know, and, and that would be the only thing I would do, but it's, it is setting up a battle rhythm in my words and setting up a time so that everybody knows one, that they can talk to the boss, you know, and two, that they know that they can ask questions or get guidance. And, and that to me is how you do that. And then, then you have to, ensure and you empower the folks that work for you to go do what they're supposed to go do um you know so for me it's not new news to to sit back and and you know quote unquote lead from afar it's it's the ability to how do you communicate and then how do you continue to keep up yeah so since you brought up the uh, the hurricanes let's let's talk about that one of the uh six or nine month windows where you got, you were very busy. Uh, we had, was it Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico all very rapidly. Uh, so A, what was that like? And then B, any lessons for the coordination of different governmental bodies uh, in addressing a dynamic emerging challenge? I mean, the wink, wink, nod, nod, what's happening right now? Um, 
So, so here's what I would say. First of all, it was very challenging. It was challenging because not, not, so each state, Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico were totally different um, and, and not in a good way or bad way, just different. Um, but what it allowed, and, and so what I ended up doing was I had a, um, a general by the name of Jeff Buchanan, a three-star, the um, Army Land Component Commander, and he kind of ran all of the stuff from a Land Component Commander, so being in charge of what's happening on the ground. The biggest lesson I learned out of all of this was the ability for me to say to him, go down and in. I'm, I'm going to, so at our 1030 meeting, here's your guidance, you go take care of that, and I'm going to go up and out. I'm going to worry about the Pentagon. I'm going to worry about the White House. I'm going to worry about Congress. I'm going to worry about public affairs. I'm going to try and give you all the guidance and latitude I can so that you can go do your job because I need you to, because I'm not, you're in Puerto Rico and I'm not because he ended up there. But more importantly, I need to make sure I give you that space to do that so that you and I, you know, every day at 10 or 10.30, we can sync up again um, and, and go from there. So for me, you know, the, um, because I'd had a, a couple of times in Washington, D.C. and had worked with Congress and worked in the Pentagon and done that, it wasn't new news, but I knew how to navigate it to give him the space to go what he needed to do um, in the states. So, I mean, one of the, you were protecting the homeland as one of the, the sort of objectives here. Uh, obviously in this time of pandemics, uh, one of the uh, questions that just came in, it, so, it seems so on topic, I figured I'll ask it now, yeah. was are there new roles for the military in a, in a time of pandemics when we start thinking about these borderless threats? Uh, I mean, how do we think about that? Well, we have to remember, uh, it's called posse comitatus. Right. And we have to remember that here in the homeland, you know, anytime I did anything to support uh, whether it was a hurricane, whether it was wildfires, uh, all of that stuff, you know, we're there's a lead federal agency and typically it's FEMA or DHS. And so the military is in a support role um, and that's the way it should be. Right. You know, so but, it, you know, I mean, I don't know a lot of what's going on, only what I read, but I know that. The military has done a great job of providing medical capability, you know, um, in support of DHS, in support of, you know, FEMA, in support of all of that, based on the request I'm sure that they've gotten. So, you know, I, I think it's the I think it's the right way it should be. And again, it goes back to you know the way our laws are written. You know that here in the homeland, you know, our lead federal agencies are are. Um, the folks, uh, DHS, FEMA, and those folks. Okay. So let's, let's turn to the big hats you were wearing uh, uh, to, as commander of, of NORTHCOM and then commander of NORAD. So one of the things that I, I've heard you describe, but I think everyone on this webinar would appreciate. So let's say a missile was launched somewhere in the world. What happens? Do you get a phone call? You get, presume it's not an email. I mean, do you get a beeper? Like, wait, you're the commander of NORAD. The missile just went off somewhere. Maybe it's going towards us. Maybe it's not. What happens? So um, there's a couple things that I think are really important. One is typically we would get some good indications and warnings. I'm not going to go into what that was, but we would, we would kind of know that things are happening. And I'll 
So I'll speak specifically to North Korea because, you know, that was really my focus um, when I was there as the commander of NORTHCOM. Um, and, and so I, you know, so we would get some good indications and warnings. I'll leave it as general as that. Um, so, so depending upon what we thought from a time frame, um, you know, my poor husband, you know, every now and then I'd jump out of bed and, you know, bother him. So there were a couple times, you know, I slept on the couch um, and I would sleep with my cell phone um, because, what, you know, knowing that there were indications of warning doesn't mean it was going to happen, but it meant that I needed to really extra pay attention. And so they would call me on my cell phone and then I would go to where I had the capability to watch and see what was happening and being part of the rest of the Department of Defense and more than that, but enterprise of talking about what happened. And so, you know, it was, it's just one of those things where you are prepared. I mean, you just have to be prepared and, you know, you have to understand what's going on out there and you trust your staff and you trust your operations center um, to keep you uh, up to speed. And then you have to be prepared to respond appropriately. And how much time do you have? I mean, this, is, this isn't, we're not talking about, hey, let's all get together in our conference room. Let's discuss it for a couple hours. If there's a missile <laughs> potentially getting on, there's decision-making protocol that has to be a little more rapid. Correct. But what I will say, so, <laughs> so I'm not going to give you a time, but what I will say is that we practice it. Okay. We practiced it. You know, I'm sure General O'Shaughnessy, who's the commander out there now, does the same thing. So, so it's not like it's the first time all of a sudden, OMG, yep. you know, but, but the fact of the matter is that it gets practiced. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, it's not like the first time something happens, it's like, oh, what do I do? You know, so, so I'm not going to give you time, but it's not, it's like you said, it's not two hours. Um, sure. and, and so we'll leave it at that. Okay, so um, let's talk about the risk of an EMP attack. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about North Korea. The North Koreans in 17 actually threatened this. They said in press releases that we will unleash the strategic nuclear EMP uh, attack on the United States. Mm -hmm. Is this a real risk? Is this something we should worry about? Uh, we should should prepare? Think, well, we should think about, right? I mean, you know, uh, not every, uh, I'm going to say it like this is not meant but so what what is it that we don't want to lose what capability is it that we don't want to lose um, and and so look at it through that what's our critical infrastructure you know and 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 start looking at through those lenses um, it's a, it's real right I mean it's real um, and but you know I'm sure the department and again I've been gone for two years so I don't know where they are but you know what what what, what is it that is our critical infrastructure and how do we ensure that um, capability um, uh, um, does not, um, uh, so tell them what EMP is. Yeah, I, I, just, I just saw this, I was gonna respond. Uh, so uh, one of the uh, attendees is asking, what is EMP? So EMP is an electromagnetic pulse attack. Uh, it's, uh, it can be thought of, um, I, General, it was all over the top and it can, you know, you know, reap a whole bunch of problems from a, a, a electrical part over a, an area. 
Yeah. So, so Barbara, one book, if, if you have time, a book recommendation, sorry, can't help myself, I teach. Uh, there's, a, there's a book uh, called One Second After, which yeah. does a decent job of articulating a scenario, but an electromagnetic pulse attack uh, would basically disable most technology uh, wow. that has solids, that has circuitry in it. Um, right. So it's a very devastating thing and could take down an economy, the grid, et cetera, for some extended period of time. And for some space, so a confined space, right? So not all the way around. And that really is at the end of the day, what's important. And that's why it's important that I, and I know the department is and continues to look at our, our critical infrastructure. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how about speaking of uh, missiles coming out of Asia, uh, General Robinson, how about hypersonics? Uh, we know that the Russians and also the Chinese uh, have been developing uh, hypersonic weapons and have, according to some in Australia and elsewhere, uh, a lead on the United States. And that has big implications for geopolitics in Asia. Uh, it has implications perhaps even for economic relationships and sort of general uh, sphere of influence implications. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? So, um... You know, again, I'll, I'll talk about from my time being in, I know we've done a lot of um, looking at hypersonics. I think what's really important, you know, from my last half of defending uh, NORAD and, and, and Northern Command is, you know, making sure we understand how to defend against it. Um, you know, how do we understand what those uh, capabilities do and then how do we defend against that? Um, and, and so I know both from an offense and defense, the department is looking at it. Um, but I, I, you know, it, it to me, it's it's just something else that we need to understand and to make sure that we can uh, can we build the capability. Do we build it from an air, a sea, a, a land-based capability? Which I know we're looking at all three. Everything I read, um, and then how do we defend against it? And and. The more we understand about it, the better we can be on both of those sides of the equation. Is there possibly an incentive structure that exists at this stage when there isn't an equivalent response capability or a known defense? So what I worry about is a first use, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if they've yeah. got a capability that we cannot defend against. Yeah. So, you know, I quite frankly, I haven't thought about that, um, you know, I, I kind of sit back and I go, hmm, interesting. Um, but especially in today, as we're dealing with everything that we're dealing with, you know, I, 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 I ponder that. Um, you know, we've, we've seen both, I think um, definitely Russia, you know, shown that they're working hard on it. Um, but, you know, I used to, and again, I'm dated, so please forgive me two years out, but, you know, capability, capacity, and intent, right? So they're working on the capability. Um, once they get the capability, they'll work a little bit on capacity, you know, but where's their, where's their intent? You know, at the end of the day, you do these things for an intention. Um, and I'm not sure there's an intent there. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and when I go a little faster, apologies, I realize I have so many questions and I also want to get to those that are coming in. So, all right, you're, you're watching what's happening with hurricanes. You have missiles getting launched by Kim Jong-un. You're worried about all sorts of things. And in the midst of all of this, this is a question that comes probably from, it might actually be my son, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you're watching Santa? 
You're paying attention to Santa during this whole thing at NORAD? So just let me tell you, if you think there was ever a no-fail mission yep. <laughs> for, for the commander of NORAD, NORAD yep. tracks Santa is yep. like the no-fail mission. So we, we would watch him, you know, as he would leave Australia, New Zealand, you know, and work his way around the world. Um, and Great. Dave and I would get to the place, just to put a huge plug in, about 1,500 volunteers throughout the day. Um, we would start at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and every two or three hours, volunteers would trade out to answer the phones for the kids around the world. Okay. Um, and, and, and the people downtown would bring the food um, to keep everybody going. Um, and the other thing that was just incredible to me, so a couple things. One is, you know, that part. The other thing was we would have um, people that could speak different languages. So that if, um, hi, Barbara, um, and uh, she's up on the chat. Um, and, and so people that spoke different languages would sit there. So if somebody called and couldn't speak English, you know, we could transfer them to another phone where they spoke the language. Yeah. And here's the other thing that I just was so grateful for in both administrations, that the president and the first lady would take the time to spend 30 minutes and, and, and answer and, and, you know, do the NORAD track Santa and answer phones, you know, how, cool, how cool is that? You know, so it's, um, it was, no, it was my biggest no fail mission. <laughs> That's great. All right. So I have lots of other topics here, whether it's, you know, I think I'm going to just focus on one here. Uh, the Arctic. Um, let's talk about the Arctic. Climate change is one of these uber risks that has sort of affects everything everywhere. Uh, it's borderless and it creates new uh, areas of potential interaction. Um, and so the Arctic was under your domain of... Uh, Part of it. Yep. And so um, something that will be militarized, something we need to worry about. Is this a new front? Is this, I mean, we got Arctic Command coming out soon or what's going to happen? Well, I don't know about Arctic Command, so I won't comment on that. I'll leave that up to the speculators. Um, but what I would say in my time there, uh, the thing that I worried the most about was the fact that in the summer, um, we were, there were cruise ships that would go through the Arctic. And I would watch where they were every single day um, because in case there, we need to do search and rescue, something happened to the cruise ship. You know, it was the first time cruise ships had been able to go through the Arctic in the summer. And, and so as we watch what's happening from a population and populating uh, perspective, um, I, I just sat back and watched, okay, you know, uh, obviously Russia has in, uh, interest, obviously China is, has interest, Obviously, we have interest and Canada, you know, the border of NORAD, the majority of that was Canada. Um, so, so what I would say about the Arctic is we just need to continue to pay attention. And I know that in, during my time, and, and I'm sure now, you know, we continue to exercise up there to understand, as I used to say, you know, we've had our feet in the sand for a lot of years and it's now time to put our toes in the snow um, and, and to understand how to, how to operate in that environment. What does that mean? What do we have for capability? I mean, it, as an airman, um, Alaska has so much 
capability from an Air Force perspective. I mean, I just read the other day, they got their first F-35s, they've got F-22s, they've got tankers, they've got E-3s, you know, the Army is up there, the Marines are up there, you know, so, so okay, that's great. So now what do we do with them? But I think, I think we just need to continue to learn, to train, to understand, and to pay attention. Gotcha. Okay. Last question, because a couple of people asked it, uh, General Robinson, and then we'll go to all the questions that are coming in. Yep. Uh, so the, the geopolitical implications of the current pandemic uh, and, how the current the military, one, sorry. and how the military may, um, may interact with that new world. The does, current, the, does the current pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, affect the geopolitical alignment? Is this meaning, does this create a power vacuum that Russia or China may try to sort of step into? Does this create a vulnerability? Does this yeah. create, so, Yeah, so I would tell you, um, any, any uh, it's no different than when we were going through hurricane season, when I was still the commander and some of that stuff. You, you always have to be ultra aware of what's going on. You always have to understand, you know, that people might take advantage of some of the things that you might be focused differently, you know. Um, and, and so um, it, uh, there is no doubt in my brain that the Department of Defense is as aware and heightened aware of what's happening in the world from a threat perspective. Um, and, you know, because it, it could be the way it is. But, but that doesn't, quite frankly, Vikram, here's what I would say. Knowing what I know from out in Colorado, they are at heightened, you know, and they are, not, and no, no less heightened than they've been at. Their ears are up and the antenna is up. And, uh, you know, so, so the United States from a Northern Command and the United States and Canada from a NORAD perspective, they need to understand they have the watch. And um, there's no doubt in my brain that they are working very, very hard on making sure that the American and Canadian people are taken care of. Good. That's great. All right. So this one ties to a lot of questions that I had, but I'm going to tie it back to some predictions. So every January, I put out a set of predictions. And uh, in January 2018, I put out a prediction that said number 16 on my list that year. It says, after intercepting a rogue missile bound for North America, NORAD Commander General Lori Robinson sees her prominence and popularity rocket, parentheses pun intended, uh, fueling hopes that the four-star Air Force General and the US military's first female combatant commander would run for president. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, remember at that briefing I had at your at, at uh, Northcom headquarters, uh, as we were before we left. I think you gave us a coffee break. Uh, as we had a coffee break, I pulled General Falkenberry aside, uh, and I said, "Barbara, how can we get General Robinson to run?" And so I think that's. Uh, I actually think that's. <laughs> I think that was Barbara's question here. So uh, so many of the people who were at U.S. Northcom. What, with me wanted you to run for office president to be exact you have to tell us what's keeping you busy these days and if political office interests you so so um so vikram the answer to your question is simple no um but what i would tell you is this um between david and i as i mentioned before we had 73 years of service to our country mm -hmm. and um you know for us right now uh, because of the time we spent apart and the time we spent apart from our family. 
um, and the privilege and the opportunity now to hang out with our children and our three grandchildren um, is so near and dear to our heart. Um, and, you know, I'm on a couple of uh, boards and I do a lot of speaking, which I love because to me, to talk about the things that um, David and I had the privilege to do and to give it back uh, to the community, um, to me, that's the best way I can serve. Um, and having been in charge of Air Force Legislative Liaison, no. <laughs> okay, with that said, I appreciate your answer. Um, I nevertheless want to suggest something. Um, and here, here's, my, here's my suggestion. Here's my suggestion. I don't know whether it's mine. Oh, it's something I came up with and I thought it, it might work. What am I going to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was my, uh, my colleague, Lily, helped me produce this. So thank you, Lily, for your help there. Thank you. But I don't can, can you just put a big X over it? <laughs> no, we're keeping that as a possibility. So I understand. Uh, I hear your answer. It was the same as you said last time. Uh, it doesn't mean we won't, uh, those of us on this uh, webinar won't keep asking. Well, you know, thank you for your consistency. <laughs> Great. All right. So let's, uh, let's turn right now, General Robinson, we've got about 20 minutes left um, to uh, some of the questions that have come in here. Uh, so the first one is, please share top three leadership lessons uh, from your outstanding career. Yeah. So thank you for commenting about it being outstanding. I felt totally blessed. So here's the first lesson I learned. And I learned it early and I didn't know what it meant until later in life. And that was that I was a part of something bigger than myself. Uh, that I was part of an institution that served our United States and took care of the uh, U.S. citizens. Um, and when I learned that, I learned that, so the second lesson was that it wasn't actually about me. It was about them and making the people around me better than me. Um, because if I did that when I retired, which I finally retired and my husband was grateful, um, then, then um, you know, then I made the institution better if I made them better. And then the last thing that I think I would say, the third thing I learned was humility and, and being humble um, and, and being grateful for the opportunities that I was giving, given and never take any of that for granted. Um, yeah, that I, I was given, along with my husband, we were given unbelievable opportunities and, the, and, and to do this with you, humility uh, and, and to say thank you. I mean, I say thank you every day for what happened to me. Um, and thank you for the leaders that sure. believed in me. And, 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 uh, and I finally understood that I was a part of something bigger than myself. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, let's keep going. Another one, uh, from Ann said, you know, you and your number one did 12 hours on 12 hours off during the North Korea uh, and nothing could happen unless one of you gave an okay. Um, sounds like a tense environment. Um, how do you grapple with the stress? How do you sort of handle that? Uh, that that's, that's, a, that's a tough pace. So, um, I, first of all, my Northcom deputy, when we were dealing with all this stuff with Kim Jong-un, we did. I mean, it wasn't necessarily 12 hours on or 12 hours off, but it was always, as an example, if I was getting on an airplane and he was getting off an airplane, we looked at each other in the eye, you know, high five and said, you're in charge now, 
you know, I mean, and, and there was always, to, I always made sure that there was somebody at the end of the phone that, you know, when the phone rang, we didn't get, you know, a no phone stuff. And, and so how do you deal with it? Well, you just have faith and confidence in the person, you know, that you're working with and you, you tell them and here's my commander's guidance and, and you tell them here's what's expected and, and you have constant communication. I mean, we communicate, I mean, to the point where on a Saturday, if, if he was at home and I was at home, um, David and I, if we wanted to go to Orange Theory, I would call him and to make sure that he was going to be at home for the hour and a half we were at Orange Theory, you know? So, I mean, that, that was the level of detail, but it's, it's trust. It's trust and confidence and faith in the person that's, you know, when I left, I knew he, he was in charge. Uh, so this is a very interesting question, logically following on from that one, um, which is, does working at NORAD ever seem routine? Is Say that one, does, does working at NORAD ever seem routine? Or does the gravity of what's at stake always with you? I mean, how do you manage that emotionally? So being both the commander of NORTHCOM and NORAD, um, I, I would tell you, in the moment, in the moment, you do what you're supposed to do. You know, when you're in your office, whether it's your office at home or your office at, at work, you know, in the moment, you know, when the Secretary of Defense calls you and says, how are you doing? You know, what's going on? You, you do what you have to do because that's, that's what you do. What people don't realize, and if I could say anything to the audience, um, what you don't realize is the toll that it's taking on you as a human being. Um, you don't understand because for those of us in those positions, and I would say any position, it doesn't matter whether it's corporate or, you know, now that I've got a little in the corporate world, but, but really you don't understand what's happening to you. And so at, to the extent that you realize you take care of yourself, take care of your body, mentally, physically, spiritually, um, because when you're done and all of a sudden, you know, you don't have all of that weighing on your shoulders, you know, you don't realize, quite frankly, how exhausted you are, how, um, you know, mentally exhausted you are. I mean, I, I tell everybody the first three months that we came to St. Pete as we were St. Pete Beach and we were building our house, you know, I, I drooled for three months. Um, I was exhausted. And you just, because you're in the moment and you're doing the things that's expected of you because you're a commander, but, but and not that I did anything bad. It's just, I always implore people to realize, you know, what's happening to you and, and to do what you can to take care of yourself in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh it's good advice for all of us at this time where uh, I think some exactly. are feeling in a different rhythm. And yeah. So there's a follow-up question here on the EMP. Um, I, I don't know whether well, I'll ask it. It says, I believe this form of asymmetric warfare makes a lot of sense for either China, North Korea, or Iran. Uh, does this worry the joint chiefs? Is this something that's still high on the list of concerns? I, you know, I don't know where it is on the priority list, but I know it's a conversation and it's a conversation uh, in the context of, you know, what's our critical infrastructure? And, I, you know, and, and again, I don't want to speak for the administration or the department because um, I'm not privy to those conversations. But I do know that in the bigger picture of critical infrastructure, 
that it, that's an important comment. Yep. So um, here's a question asked anonymously, so we'll ask it. Has there ever been suspicion or research into the weaponization of natural disasters or severe weather events? Not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a that's a new one on me too. But I can imagine with some geoengineering logic. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's probably people out there. I mean, people think about a lot of nefarious things, you know. So I'm not going to say no, but not that I'm aware of. So I just, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. put it in that context. Yep. Okay. So here's a uh, question that was emailed in. I'll ask this now. Um, you prospered in a culture of fighter jocks, despite not being one. Um, when did you need to just go along with the culture and when did you need to assert yourself? What was the example you were most proud of? So, um, so when you're, um, you know, when you're the first uh, female instructor at the United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School, you, you can make some personal decisions. You know, do you go along to get along or, or do you, you know, stick up? My, my, uh, what I tried to do, uh, quite frankly, was I tried to be the best that I could be so that my reputation wasn't about being a woman uh, and wasn't about being a thumb pointer or, or a chest poker, although I had that reputation, but it was more about um, being the best at what I did. Um, and, and, uh, and in fact, I tell everybody probably the greatest um, a compliment I ever got from those guys um, was when we go to war, we want Lori on the radio. And I can't imagine in my career and career field to have had a, a better compliment than that. I will tell you, um, and I will, you know, I'll say this, you know, if you look at Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, and he's got a chapter uh, about um, me and General Jumper, it, 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 describes the ability to um, be able to stand for what I thought I did was right, but more importantly, that he said, she's right. And what I learned out of all of that is, as you know, if you, if you stand up and you, you go, hey, here's what happened in this world, right, of doing a mission in, in that very world. So, but it's making sure you have your facts right, you execute correctly, you do those things. And so over time, you know, those lessons that I learned, and I tell everybody, you know, my couple of years there at Nellis Air Force Base shaped me uh, as an airman and shaped me about how to go do something. And, um, and, and General Jumper, is the one that told me about being a part of something bigger than yourself. And so, so for me, yeah, I grew up in that world, but you know what? I, I, what I appreciated is because I got to fly a lot with them is they're, they're up there and it's, it's them. And, you know, I can, I can contribute to their situational awareness, but at the end of the day, you know, they're the ones that have to do the job. And, um, and so I, I really, uh, I learned so much from that. And so it became a part of, you know, my ability to do the job, be the best that I could be and, and, and be a, a part of the team, you know, and, 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 and make sure that being a part of the team that I was contributing and that I was a part of something bigger than myself. 
Sure. So it, it actually ties nicely, uh, General Robinson, with the story I put in the book about you here. Um, and I remember you telling the story, at least in one of my conversations with you, about Taryn um, and how that changed your framework of thinking. And I think the description was sort of petty bureaucratic battles in the Pentagon stopped mattering, yeah. uh, etc. But maybe you can share that story if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. David's sitting here with me. and. Um, so uh, Taryn uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2000, June of 2005. She went running with the bulls for crying out loud. Um, you know, she, was a crazy, she was a crazy, wonderful young lady. Um, she wanted to be a fighter pilot like her dad. And um, she was down in San Antonio. And um, she, uh, on her second flight, uh, went out and they did um, what they called, my husband's handing me a Kleenex. Um, they, did what they called, you know, um, simulated flame out. Uh, they went too low, uh, ended up hitting an electrical wire, airplane turned upside down, landed flat on the ground. The instructor uh, died upon contact and, and Taryn lived for 111 days. She had uh, uh, third and fourth degree burns over 82% of her body. And um, she was the strongest human being I've ever seen in my life. Um, but what I would tell you, the biggest lesson in, in that journey, my husband stayed there the entire time. I had to go back and forth uh, to the Pentagon. But the biggest lesson in that journey was the day when I came down there, David called me and he said, you've got to get down here now. And I'm like, okay, because there had been a fungus and a bunch of things medically, which I won't get into, which is, but we spent an entire night talking to each other about giving her permission to die. And um, we decided that it was important for us to give her permission to die. And for me and for David, from that moment on, it was thank you God for today, not please God, let me have another day. And so from that moment on, I would tell you, and I, I'm sure David would agree with the same thing, that we say thank you for every day. And, and it was a big lesson on life and, and, and the opportunity and the ability to live life to its fullest um, and say thank you every day. So no matter how rough things were, whether it was in Colorado or whether it was in the Pacific or wherever it was or in Qatar or wherever, it was thank you for today. Yeah. Um, and um, she taught us that lesson. We didn't learn it on our own. She taught us that lesson. Um, and, and so I, uh, I cherish that. I'm sorry she's not here with us. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, um, it's something that we, we, we say thank you for today because of her. Yeah, well, it, uh, it's, it's a powerful lesson, uh, General Robinson. It's, uh, it's one that I'm honored that you shared with me to include in the book. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so let me uh, let me ask you a, a, a different kind of question here. Um, what's your favorite movie? Oh, oh! <laughs> a couple of questions. It just make. Just, I'm, gonna say, I'm gonna say two things. Okay, so I love all the Indiana Jones series. I okay. think Indiana Jones is just wonderful. The first one and the last one are my favorite. Now, my husband's favorite movie, which he, you know, instills upon me, is Thomas Crown Affair. Ah, got it. 
Okay. Well, a lot of us. Uh, Not Crown Affair, but Indiana Jones and the Star Wars. It's, those are those. I love those, and that just shows you how old I am. <laughs> uh, those are classics. A lot of us love those. Uh, and then, uh, how about books? Any books uh, that you think are fabulous that we should read? And not the scary ones like Ghostly or One Second After. I can't read those. I like I like li- not lighthearted books, but books that keep you going. So I'm a big Tom Clancy fan. Okay. I'm a Herman Wook fan. Um, and um, so again, those are older. Um, and I've started reading, and I forget who writes. And my sister turned me on to these guys. Um, but there's another whole series of books that I'm reading. And, and um, I just uh, I like things that that take my mind away from what's happening today, right? Sure. Because when you read too much news, or you watch too much news, or you read, you know, periodicals that are now. Um, and, and after 37 years of reading intelligence reports and, and you know, having to read all the stuff of decisions that you want to give to the secretary or the president, lighthearted. And no. I'm not as, I don't like scary crap at all. <laughs> not, I don't like scary stuff at all. I like, the, I like mysteries. There you go. Good. Um, yeah, I'm a Hallmarks movie and mystery person. Okay, so I'm going to ask, oh, there's three more questions and we're going to try to squeeze them in here if we can, uh, since they're popping up fast on my screen here. Um, so one is, um, you know, can the U.S. military afford to focus so much of its resources abroad when China, Russia, Iran, and others are working to establish footholds in the Americas, broadly defined perhaps as Western Hemisphere? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question is, should we explicitly prioritize the Western Hemisphere above well, the domains? Yeah, so... So to me, it's not about which hemisphere. You know, if you look at the unclassified version of the national defense strategy, obviously Russia and China are big in there. So it's the understanding of what they're doing and where they're going and and how they are, Lori's words, um, putting themselves, you know, in these different places. And then it comes down to, um, you know, how do we prioritize forces? And I know uh, I've done some reading about this that the Secretary of Defense is looking at all of that. Um, but it's not, it's not necessarily just a hemisphere or a space. It's, it's the capability that they're doing and how do we think about that? Um, yeah. And then, you know, and then what do we do about it? Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm not in the know anymore, but, you know, I, that's kind of, to me, the bigger picture. Yep. And so uh, really interesting question here that came out. Who's your favorite president and why? Well, I won't say favorite because I, I, I would never say favorite. Here's who I'm, I'm humbled by. Um, when Taryn was in the hospital um, in uh, San Antonio at Christmas, uh, President Bush, um, I'm sorry, yeah, 43, uh, came by the hospital. And um, he spent 45 minutes in her room with her. And, um, and, and when he left, first of all, he walked into the room and he was absolutely crying um, because I know that all he could see was his daughters in bed. Um, I didn't mention this, but within two weeks of her being in the hospital, um, we had to amputate her feet because of the fire had burned through. And, um, and all he could see, I'm sure, is his daughters there. Um, time marches on, and when she passed away, he called. Yeah. And he um, gave us our, his condolences. And then after that, six months later, 
uh, I had made one star and he sent David and I a letter. And so I'm humbled by that, you know? Um, so I, I don't like to say favorite because there's, you know, but I'm humbled, but that the president of the United States would take the time to call David and I in the passing of our daughter and would take the time to write a letter. In fact, I, he, he sent me my, David and I, my one star list that got confirmed by the Senate. Congratulations, Lori. You know, best, best of everything, George Bush. Yeah. Well, General Robinson, you've had an amazing uh, trajectory uh, for, we didn't bother to introduce you. I didn't bother to introduce you because I, I would hope people would be able to just simply Google, but obviously the Time 100 Most Influential in the World, on the cover of Time Magazine for Female Firsts, obviously the professional accomplishments. Uh, it seems like there's a book here. Well, I've been pestered about it. So I'm contemplating it, but I've been pestered about it. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like there's a book coming. At least that's my that's my prediction that there may be a book coming well, here. I'll make it the same prediction that you did before. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I know we're out of time here. There's still plenty of questions, but I think in the interest of time, we'll wrap up. Thanks. General Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time. An honor. Thank you for your service. Thank David for his service. Thank you for your family. I, I feel grateful as an American to have had leaders like you helping protect this country. Thank you. Thanks, Vikram. Thank you for your time. And I appreciate your friendship, David, and I really do. Great. Thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchramani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.